Hi, I'm John Muska. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today we'll hear an encore of our conversation with Dr. Edwin Mayorga. Dr. Mayorga is Assistant Professor in the Department of Educational Studies and the Program in Latin American and Latino Studies at Swarthmore College. He is founder and co-researcher of the Education in Our Barrios Project and co-editor of the volume, What's Race Got to Do With It? How Current School Reform Policy Maintains Racial and Economic Inequality. Welcome, Edwin. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks. What is abolitionist education? So I think abolitionist education is, well, let me start by saying what it's not. I think there's this misconception that abolitionist education is solely this kind of extreme, dis, you know, burning down of every single thing that we have known. And I center my understanding of abolitionist education, abolitionist teaching around the idea of, of what's possible and what we what I think ultimately our children, our communities deserve. And that I think is, is ultimately freedom or liberation, a kind of capacity and ability to be sovereign, to be self-determined in this world. And so I think for me, it's, it's also going back to what one of my teachers, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has spoken about as freedom as a place. And how does an education that is bent towards the organization and creation of freedom as a place. That's my question often is what does that look like? What can it look like? And in many ways, what has it already looked like when we think historically about the different ways that people have innovated and sought to use education or to work through education as a means for liberation for, for both individual and collective liberation? So when you talk about freedom as a place, what does that mean in practice? How, if you're looking at that in a school or as a way of thinking, what is that? Sure. I think the, in some ways, I feel like it's not that complex in the sense that it's about, ultimately it's about relationships. It's relationships between people, but it's also relationships to this earth, to the inanimate objects the tools with which you know people made tools as well as the natural world and that in that kind of relational perspective freedom is a collective pursuit to allow each thing to live colloquially you know the way we talk about being our best selves um or wanting to to be our best selves we can't possibly be our best selves both collectively or individually if we're not all free and I think to me, then, it's creating classrooms where, one, that is the vision and mission of the classroom, and that I think it would be presumptuous to assume that you could come into it knowing exactly what everything is going to look like, because I think what freedom means to us is an ongoing kind of iterative process, right? We continually define and redefine what our freedom, what freedom means, I think, but that the classroom is the place to ask that question um, and to explore that question and to change ourselves and change each other and change our relationships to, to continually 
sometimes incrementally and then at other moments like in big leaps and bounds to work towards freedom for everyone in this classroom. I know both of you are, are, are Deweyans and I, I too am a Deweyan. And you know, for me, when Dewey is talking about school and education not being preparation for life, but life itself, that to me is abolitionist, you know, liberatory education, that freedom is a place and that our classrooms are places where that freedom can be built. It's not preparation to be free, but actually about the work of getting free. So you talk about critical racial ethnic studies. What does that mean? And how does that relate to what you were just saying? I think it has everything to do with it, primarily, and and this, you know, speaking personally, in the multiple ways that I see myself as an educator, an activist, a parent, a scholar, a community member, a friend, a brother, um, in all of those avenues that are aspects that define me, the influence and impact of critical racial and ethnic studies, and I would say even more specifically, Black radical traditions, Black feminist traditions, Indigenous theories, U.S. Latinx-based theories, and, and hemispheric kind of global theories in particular have influenced my thinking as to, one, what critical racial and ethnic studies enlivens in us as to how we think about freedom, liberation, learning, teaching, social change, transformation. I also think the important work that critical racial and ethnic studies does is, you know, similar to, are you familiar with the Sankofa bird? Yes. You know, the Sankofa bird. Explain that to our listeners. Yes, that's a good idea. So my understanding, right, in, you know, African traditions, the idea of the Sankofa bird is that image of the bird that's looking backwards, but the rest of the body is moving in, in the other direction. Um, you know, it's a kind of linear drawings or linear two-dimensional things, but I think about it in multidimensionality, but part of it is this idea of moving, I kind of am hesitant to say progress, but I'm like moving in a direction and perhaps moving towards that long arc of freedom, but at the same time, looking back to our histories, right? Sankofa referring to the notion of going out and fetching it, right? Like retrieving, it's a kind of process of retrieving our histories, reconnecting ourselves to our histories. You know, in my own research, I talk about that as remembering, which is a direct act of resistance to the kinds of erasure and what I describe as dismemberment that we experience, particularly as BIPOC, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color in this country and globally, that we experience uh, this kind of rupture from our own histories by intention. And so the Sankofa bird to me is this kind of act of resistance to that, or a, a kind of symbol of that kind of practice of looking back and retrieving. And that's what I think to me, critical racial and ethnic studies also affords us. It inspires us to be focused on liberation at the same time retrieving the kinds of things that have been taken away from us. And that, uh, you know, Bettina Love and others in the Black radical traditions have described as spirit murdering. Our spirits have been murdered, and in order for us to recuperate, to heal from those kinds of multi-generational or intergenerational traumas, the work of retrieving is so, so vital from my perspective and, and from the traditions of critical racial ethnic studies.
what does it mean to decolonize education and how does it relate to remembering? I feel like that's a big catchword. That one and and you know, an abolitionist, I feel like in these last few months of uh of the pandemic have certainly <laughs> everybody's doing it now all of a sudden, which causes me a lot of consternation actually, because the question of decolonizing our syllabi, decolonizing our curriculum, decolonizing our food. The wonderful indigenous scholar Eve Tuck and, and her comrade, our comrade um, K. Wayne Yang, have eloquently articulated that decolonization is, not, is first and foremost not a metaphor. It's a practice. It's an ongoing set of events that are, one, I think, you know, to me, specifically focused on mapping the ways in which coloniality has and continues to circulate throughout our lives, in our bodies, in our teaching, in our classrooms, in our societies. And two, I think, you know, again, not to be repetitive, but it is a decolonization is also a practice of retrieval, of reconnecting ourselves to those histories that coloniality hinges upon erasing. And that that work, again, is not metaphorical. It is about reading, planning, dialogue, dancing, singing, that create these kinds of rippling echoes of, of who we are and where, we're, where we are going. To not only, again, I, I, think, I think I'm in a moment in my life and, and in this pandemic where I'm really focusing not to be Pollyannish, but to be a, what, Cornel West describes as audaciously hopeful. I'm really focusing on joy and hope. And, and so with decolonization, I think really focusing not on the, pro yes, it is about the process of decentering colonial, you know, Western or Eurocentric ways of doing things, but I'm really more interested in what is being centered instead, rather than what we're busy decentering. And so it's there, I think, to me, when we're looking, you know, I'm a college professor, but I was also a second grade teacher, a fourth grade teacher. And in each of those instances, what I was looking at is not just inclusiveness of, um, which is I think what we, we in education have spent a long time, particularly in the, the traditions of multicultural education. It kind of flattened out the, the, the politics, the edge of multicultural education, I think was flattened out in order for it to survive in some way to the point that it got watered down to focus only on inclusion, right? Like we're going to include other voices. But where I'm at right now, at this point in my career as an educator and as an activist um, and as a parent is to think about, um, I'm not talking about including, I'm talking about centering something else, right? Centering our stories, centering the stories of others. And that I think is, is where I'm kind of at right now, but it's, it's an ongoing process. So it sounds as though it's the colonized that need to center their own cultures, their own traditions. What's the role for the colonizers? I think, you know, to me, and I think this is true of abolition too, because I, I don't want us to get it twisted and, and suggest that abolition and decolonization are the exact same thing, because I think at some points there are two distinct projects that are of course, you know, bound up in each other's pursuits. 
But that said, I, I think the colonizer, I think the, the first step to me is helping the colonizer to come to a point where they accept responsibility or accept culpability in this larger historical process in which our entire world has been shaped and reshaped and has continued to be shaped. So I think that's part one or step one is to recognize and understand it and to accept responsibility for it. And I think as we go through, I think it's not, I'm not a stage theorist. You know, we don't go from one stage to the other. I think these are overlapping and sometimes recursive and like we circle back and move forward. We stumble around, but as we are engaging in that process of accepting responsibility I think then the colonizer needs to think about what steps they are going to take, one, to make amends for that and to engage in in their areas of influence, whatever that might be, to push further the conversation around, one, the return of land. How are we going to repatriate the land or what would that look like and what would communities look like. I think, again, with decolonization, similar to like abolition, there's fears that it's like just, they just want to dismantle everything and just get rid of people. You know, far from it, I think it's more about thinking about a different possibility, a different, a kind of otherwise world and otherwise relationship. And so for me, decolonization is first and foremost about, you know, as we're retrieving our histories, to also be thinking about a kind of future that is not land ownership dependent, that our relationship to the land is a completely different one. It's one that is, again, a kind of retrieval to indigenous and other ways of knowing, kind of folk ways of understanding what the land is that are kind of preceded capitalism and this kind of enclosure of land and and kind of monetization of land. And so tied to land then is knowledge again and history and storytelling. And so how again does the colonizer participate? And I would say invite to be not allies, but rather accomplices to the kind of work. Um, Another word that I use is acompañando, right? Accompanying. How can the colonizer accompany the colonized in this process of retrieval of repatriation of land, of redistribution of power and resources and decision-making, right? That those kinds of decision-making and our ways, even our ways of governance are kind of built on a different foundation, right? A set of foundations that center the colonized, the histories and and the voices and the needs of the colonized and inviting them, you know, I don't think of it as trying to eliminate anyone what we're trying to do is help facilitate a reorientation for everyone to, to what matters, to what's important, and how are we going to live together and live freely. So I want to follow up a little bit on that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not even sure exactly what the question is, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. So Go for it. <laughs> people are colonizers, but that is not the sole extent of their identity. Certainly. And I've thought a lot about how do we mesh the issues, like for example, the 99%, the kind of issues that Bernie Sanders was bringing up with the issues of, you know, 
BIPOC people being very directly and more immediately oppressed than, than people of non-color in the United States or elsewhere. But in a sense, everybody has elements to which they are both colonizers and colonized. I'd be really interested in, have you thought about ways of, of sort of bringing the various strands of this together so that we're centering people who've been most directly oppressed, but we're also recognizing that, you know, the white coal miner in Appalachia and Bill Gates mm-hmm. don't have a whole lot in common other than yeah. skin color. <laughs> right. Um this is the question, I think, or it's the question that I think for me has has been primarily as an activist and as an educator, but primarily as an activist, I think, is is a lot of what I've been grappling with for quite some time now. And I would say, you know, in, in my activism with the New York Collective of Radical Educators or NICOR, that was where a lot of our work ended up turning to, specifically with the question of, you know, as our as our book that uh, Brie Pickauer and and Uju Agarwal and I have have co-edited in, in its in the most recent edition, which is to ask like, what's race got to do with these kinds of, you know, what we we are describing as like neoliberal or kind of capitalist oriented educational reform policies or educational reform strategies. I think that's where I kind of come at your question, John, where that question actually kind of emerged from when Occupy Wall Street began, where the question of race and, you know, we weren't using the language of BIPOC then, but we were using, you know, the language of people of color and where where the struggles of people of color are situated in relation to the calls of the 99% and Occupy Wall Street, and the working class. In our kind of search and my personal, you know, explorations, a lot of it sits, goes back to Cedric Robinson's work around racial capitalism. And to me, the, the understanding or the, the perspective that the ways in which race and capitalism produce a certain kind of set of living conditions, as well as identities and bodies, even though that is not, our identities are not by any means singular, and I'm not trying to suggest that. But I think that the racial and the ways that race and capital shape us and shape our trajectories cannot be understood without the other one being considered. So for example, we cannot consider the class politics of the coal miner and Bill Gates without also contending with the ways in which whiteness operate in their lives. It certainly by no means is the same because of the way class and economic conditions, you know, kind of modify or articulate the ways we live, but whiteness is always there as well, right? So it's a kind of, I'm not trying to suggest I'm hedging, but I'm actually asking us to expand our view in such a way that sees them as a both and, that these things are operating in ways that sometimes are parallel and actually amplify one another. And then there are other moments where it actually contradicts one another. You know, as we look at this election, this most recent national election, to think about the ways in which 
the Republican Party and specifically 45 was trying to frame that they are the voice of working people and everyday Americans to me was an interesting and smart strategy. I don't agree with it, but it was certainly an interesting and smart strategy. And I think it it left open, right? And this is where I think the voice of Bernie Sanders was absent at this at the end of this election cycle, where the kind of working class anti-racist politics that we that can and should be, from my perspective, embraced were were kind of left on the sideline. And yet, you know, we need to ask ourselves, well, who are the people that made this Biden presidency or president-elect Biden possible, if not for working Black people and specifically working Black women? I, I think, again, that's where we, uh, you know, both in national and local politics, I think that's where we really drop the ball on the progressive side of things, where we really are kind of in the weeds and we're kind of, we kind of, we kind of spin our wheels in terms of having like gaining really good traction on how to talk about these issues at once. I feel as though I have been pressed by the fact that even just kind of the notion of racial justice has entered our national conversation. I feel like in these last few elections, even during the Obama administration, racial justice as explicitly as we saw it in people's platforms, it certainly wasn't there. But of course, you know, how deep was that going remains to be seen. But I remain hopeful that particularly as movements like Black Lives Matter continue into this next presidency, that those conversations, I think, will continue to be pushed in ways that I hope are bringing us to to seeing in this kind of expansive view that I'm talking about. How would this racial capitalist lens manifest in the classroom? Well, that's a tough one. No, um, <laughs> the, uh, always with the tough questions, Amy. The, to me, I think it, it comes back to racial and ethnic studies. And I think in the classroom, again, and this is actually part of my critique of racial and ethnic studies is that historically we have focused on so focused on race and culture and ethnicity that the role of capital actually has been absent or kind of diminished. But if we, you know, I'm a big fan of the late Clyde Woods, who was a black geographer, and he talked about one, he talked about a blues epistemology but he also talked about plantation economies, right? And that being a prime example of racial capitalism. And so in the classroom, I think it's actually quite natural to have a conversation with seventh and eighth graders, for example, around plantation economies and inviting them to actually think about in what ways do we still see the echoes or the remnants or the explicit uses of a kind of plantation economic logic in our world today? If we're looking at the internet and the explosion of TikTok, for example, TikTok provides a space for a lot of creative young people, particularly creative young people of color, to put out some really interesting new innovative dances or ways of expressing themselves. You know, and there was a New York Times article, I, th- I think it was in the Times, 
talking about the dance, the renegade. This was like spring of 2019. Even my 10 year old knew about the renegade and like his whole school was doing it. But the, the part of that story that goes ignored is that the, the person who created it was this young black woman, but for a long time, didn't, she didn't get the credit for the creation of the dance because there was a more famous TikTok white woman who added an ending to it. And that version with the ending becomes the thing that gets all of the, the likes and the views and all of that. And so there's all this attribution to that person. And that to me is a conversation you can have with young people about our intellectual, you know, we're still in a capitalist economy. And so it's like our intellectual and creative property and how that gets exploited in both racial and economic ways. Um, and so who is actually benefiting and who's being exploited, I think are just, you know, to give a concrete example of, you know, racial capitalism at work. So the, the fruits of people's labor and I think using that as a way to actually look back and see plantation economies the farm workers movements of California, for example, or even locally to Long Island. And the, there's a, there was an organization, you know, some years ago, I don't know if it's still in operation called the Workplace Project, which is working with day laborers in, you know, in the Long Island farm agricultural scene, as well as the construction sector. And, uh, you know, even then, I remember when I was student teaching in a fifth grade classroom in Manhattan, we actually invited the Workplace Project to come and share a little bit about the work that they did because we were studying the U.S.-Mexican border. And so, you know, I think there, again, like seeing both labor and race continually bound to one another, those are the kind of conversations that I think we should be having and that I absolutely think that young people of various ages can digest and wrestle with. You know, I think what it might mean for a six or seven year old to talk about race and labor is going to be different from what an eighth grader, a 14, 15 year old is talking about. But I think some variation of that kind of conversation can still be had in those different kinds of classrooms. As you're talking about what what can go on in a classroom, mm -hmm. in, in say an abolitionist classroom, um, you've talked about the Kensington Health Sciences Academy as an example of a kind of school that you're talking about where this exists, I gather, on a school-wide level. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about it and why, why you see it as a model for other schools? Yeah. So Kensington Health Sciences Academy is a, a small high school in the Kensington neighborhood here in Philadelphia, um, where I, I reside now and doing a lot of my work and activism here, research as well. And it's an inspiring place I think precisely because its focus is on relationships. What they, the school themselves, talk about is a critically conscious community. And consciousness, I think, there means both a kind of awareness and consciousness of the larger global issues that shape us, right, including racial capitalism and its impact, but also the, a kind of critical awareness of each other, a kind of uh, what um, I believe her name is Kathleen Lynch. I know Lynch is the last the last name of this scholar from Dublin, um, who talks about affective justice. And the idea really of, of thinking about a kind of critical awareness of the emotional conditions in which we live. And that a kind of social justice that is divorced of affective justice 
is not really just at all. And so I, I, what I see at Kensington Health Sciences is that kind of affective love and care. Um, you know, we talk about Nell Noddings and a kind of ethic of care and approach to care that I think is, is very present there. But I also think is that care is also not divorced of community. And this is a predominantly Latinx community, both of multi-generational Puerto Rican as well as more immigrant, more recent arrival kind of immigrant communities, as well as black African-American communities and Afro-Caribbean communities that make up the school student and family population, as well as some of the teachers and, and um, staff members. Again, they're, they're focused on relationships, on an awareness, on a kind of participatory collaborative spirit to me are hallmarks of what I see as working towards freedom as a place. In what ways do people lift each other up? They annually now for the last couple of years have had this conference called Critically Conscious Communities. And present at these conferences are parents, students, community members, community partners, activist organizations, holding workshops, listening to each other, talking about those things. It's also a really kind of joyful celebratory place I follow them on Instagram. It's interesting to learn about schools through Instagram and what kind of curated image they communicate. But I think what's admirable about KHSA is that their celebrations are also intentionally, not just inclusive, but communicating the message that everyone in this community matters, their histories, their ways of doing things matter. Like the lunchtime at the, at the first year's conference all of a sudden turned into like a dance line around the school's cafeteria because they had had a live bachata trio, like trio playing music during the lunch. And then all of a sudden it just kind of broke out into a dance. And so to me, you just don't, I mean, I've been in a lot of schools, both in New York and, and in Philadelphia, and you just don't get that. And these are things that, yes, it happened at this conference, but it's something that I've seen that actually has happened at other moments throughout the school year. And it's been interesting to see them try to also then figure out what that kind of community means in the pandemic that we're experiencing now. So take us into a KHSA classroom. How does it differ from another classroom? Yeah, so a couple of teachers that, I, that I've, you know, worked with my, my sense is one that it's absolutely, and in the formal classroom, I've certainly have seen some of these same things in schools in New York that have historically been doing some of these kinds of transformative things. And they're very kind of basic things, but things like setting up in a circle rather than in rows or desks, which I think you, you still drop into many public high schools and it's still a lot of rows and you know, or maybe a little better as like clusters of seats. But here, yeah, it's a lot of like sitting in circles, a lot of even in the selection of literature. One case in point is the use of Acevedo's book, Poet X, which is, uh, you know, she's a New York-based Dominicana writer, U.S. Dominican writer. It's a book, you know, a YA, a young adult piece of literature that is... A novel but it's all written as poems and so you know just kind of a fascinating book a wonderful book on its own but to see that some of the teachers there actually use that as the central text from which to have conversations to think about 
to invite the students to think about their own communities, to their own neighborhood, and their own sense of identity. A lot of the book, I don't know if, you, if you've read it, but I, I highly recommend if you haven't, but so much of it is about the body and our sense of self um, and our own identities. And, you know, I've appreciated actually hearing, these are, I'm talking about teachers who have, who have actually done this with their students. And um, so through these conversations and close readings and reading together, the students then, you know, have reacted in ways where they see themselves in the literature and are also seeing themselves in the author, that they too are authors and have the opportunity to, to write themselves into the larger narratives of society. And you know, I'll just close by saying another piece to this actually is that another teacher I know there is the coach for their slam poetry team, the Tiger Poets. And these Tiger Poets have, they go out and they compete in local slam poetry, but they've also written chapbooks together it's just transformative, I think, um, to me, kind of, well, not kind of, but I think starts facilitating young people being able to see themselves as sovereign and self-determined in that they have, not only that they have a voice, but that they have the skills to use that voice in whatever ways they, they wish to. You've defined the role of teacher as lead inquirer. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in, in a classroom situation? I think abolition, abolition requires us to ask questions. I was actually at my son's career day this morning talking about my job as a social scientist and an activist and a teacher. And one of the things I focused on this morning was that what's cool about all three of those things is how many questions I get to ask and how I'm able to pursue, like I'm able to go out and try to figure out the answers to these questions and often just kind of finding more questions. But that to me is what's potentially liberatory of when a teacher is focused on the question and inviting all participants in a classroom community to ask questions, to also then co-lead the search for answers, the search for knowledge, the production of knowledge. You know, so much of education, particularly in K-12, is still that kind of banking education that Paulo Freire has for decades now has taught us is what we do. And yet repeatedly, and I think even even the push in, in the last two decades around high stakes testing and the kind of conceit that, oh, well, you know, or, or just like the, the kind of false narrative that uh, we're asking them to do critical thinking within these testing formats. You know, now as a college professor, I see what impact that has on student, on certain students, because I can, I can start to get a sense with my undergraduates, all very high performing, you know, like students that have worked their tails off to get into, you know, a place like Swarthmore, very elite, but it's a very diverse school. And so a number of the students who are first generation students or students of color or working class students you can you can get a sense that they're absolutely brilliant but they have also been conditioned into a way of learning that is performative rather than introspective reflective and transformative in such a way that um they struggle at, at first right to ask the kinds of questions that i'm inviting them to just think about or to consider it's not that they don't know or that they don't have questions it's that 
they haven't, they've had limited opportunities to ask questions in such a way and ask questions in such a way that also connects that back to, to again, our liberation or our capacity to be free or our capacities and strategies for changing conditions that we can all take a part in. What does it mean for a teacher to move at the speed of trust? Yeah, so that's one of my favorite sayings right now, and I certainly did not come up with it. I look to Adrienne Marie Brown. I look to a number of uh, LGBTQ queer communities of color and communities of color with uh, people with disabilities, uh, disability justice kind of movement people who have really focused on this notion of moving at the speed of trust. And I think to me, ultimately, it's again back to relationships and that our point of departure should be, especially, you know, as teachers and kind of focusing here on the classroom, but as educators, how can we, or I think our point of departure each time we gather with a new set of students is one where the focus is on, in thinking about liberation and freedom as a place, that trust is absolutely necessary but that trust is not a given. It has to be earned by each and every one of us. We have to learn how to trust one another, but also teach each other how we can trust each other. And so I think that's what needs to be done in the classroom. And in particular, and I think, you know, again, KHSA is an important example of that, is that if we even scale it up to an entire school, that so many of our schools are actually not premised on trust and building trust even though we rhetorically or, you know, just kind of discursively say, oh, well, everyone trusts one another here, blah, blah, blah. Um, if we actually ask that question, do we trust one another? Have we done the work to build that trust? Have we earned that trust from each other? I would say that most young people would respond, no, my school has not done that work. And I haven't, they haven't been invited to be part of that kind of process. And so if the adults aren't, trusting the students, and the adults don't even trust other adults, whether it be parents or teachers, I think we're kind of dead in the water. How can we teach students to be trustworthy? I think to me, it's ultimately about modeling. To use the KHSA example, you know, the principal, the school director, Nimet Aaron, from what I've seen, is putting in a lot of work on emphasizing and instilling that that kind of ethic of trust building and modeling that the way she speaks with students, the way she speaks with her teachers, the way she speaks with parents and, you know, how that is echoed in how teachers speak to students and how teachers are speaking to each other, not just as professionals, but in a kind of, again, a kind of ethic of care. Um, If we don't model that, and also alongside that create opportunities for young people to work that out, right? To put that into action in their own ways um, within the kind of school context or the school community, what I talk about a school community nexus, that kind of intersecting point, then I think again, students won't have these kind of secure or at least nominally safe environments in which to take risk around trust because trust is i think tied to vulnerability we're really we really keep ourselves exposed when we are kind of facing the world in this 
desire to trust and to be trusted. So in the complicated world that we live in, schools, I think, have a really wonderful opportunity, actually, to create those kind of safe spaces for trust and risk-taking, or trust-building and risk-taking that I think are necessary. So I have a question that obviously comes up a lot when you're talking about how to create environments like KHSA. Um, Was KHSA a using the word progressive or a school focused on trying to build trust among everybody and relationships. Was it that way from its inception or did it evolve from a more traditional school? I mean, it's, it's part of what I'm starting to look at and, and starting to do research alongside some of the teachers and the principal and, and some of the students. So, you know, we're just scratching the surface of that or, or we're really just kind of getting started on, on building the relationships to even have these conversations. Um, but from what I'm to gather thus far, the school is actually part, was part of a larger Kensington kind of comprehensive high school that I think is similar to the kind of comprehensive high school that Michelle Fine writes about in 1991's book, Framing Dropouts. It was a kind of dropout or what Michelle Fine describes as a pushout factory. And so the school, from what I'm to understand, was a kind of pushout factory. It was failing and it was closed. And so the strategy and similar to what we have seen in New York uh, since the Bloomberg administration was a uh, kind of, um, market logic to the ways of reforming or transforming schools, which is, you know, if a school site is not productive, according to certain metrics, that they merit closure. Um, You just close up shop. And I've heard that said both in New York and even more so here at different points in time where, you know, schools are treated like a part of a portfolio and it's a bad investment. And so you close it. And so Kensington, the the larger comprehensive high school is one of those bad investments from that kind of logic. And so the strategy there was to actually break up the school into multiple small schools. And so Kensington Health Sciences is one of those three, maybe four schools. Um, I think there are three that are active, but there might have been a fourth one in the initial reorganization of the school. But, uh, some of the schools, including KHSA, was, were relocated to other parts of the Kensington neighborhood. And so my understanding is that once it becomes this small school, the current principal, when they come on board, is, is kind of the, the start of, or the initiation of some of these shifts in, in the ways in which it was doing things. Have you seen examples of more traditional schools that have been able to make the shift in their educational and social emotional cultures, either under the same leadership or new leadership? So I think, you know, abolitionist, abolitionist approaches or liberatory approaches are not all the same. And I think about them as a kind of spectrum like schools are in different places and different points in their evolution, you know, trajectories. Um, But if we use that as the, as a goal, right, that the schools are more liberatory than they had been. I would say that I have seen a few schools that I would say on the whole still remain fairly traditional or, or at the very least are, focused on compliance with the expectations of our local school district. 
which I would argue are very much focused on performance and measurable certain kinds of metrics around test scores and things like that. But even as they have complied, I think they have also used like different resources or small grants that the school district offers to actually really focus on building relationships with families. Um, one school that comes to mind that is also one that I've been studying is um, a kindergarten to eighth grade school in South Philadelphia called Kirkbride, where they have a, a fairly new principal, but someone that a principal that had also come from other kind of community based, community rooted, both like charter schools and traditional schools here in Philadelphia, which, you know, has a large charter school sector. But I think what she's been able to do, I think, again, is, yes, she stays within the certain parameters and expectations, but at the same time, I think pushes the envelope alongside her teachers. Again, I think she's good about trying to facilitate partnership and relation, like uh, caring relationships with her, her staff from what I've seen, or, you know, at the very least, I think comes from a position of respecting teachers and families as their own experts, that they too have wisdom and knowledge and perspectives that absolutely matter to the direction of the entire school community. And so in that, I've seen good things, things that I would describe as, as good positive changes that I think still sit within what we might think about as traditional or what right now is seen as traditional approaches to teaching and things like that. But I think I'm kind of hesitating to say, well, asking myself, like, what is traditional? But without going too far afield, within a a traditional framework, I think teachers still feel a certain level of freedom and autonomy to make some decisions, to do what they think is right for their students. And so I see that as a positive. It may not be the kind of abolitionist thing that that we were talking about with KHSA, but I think it's, it's still within that same kind of spectrum that I was talking about a moment ago. So often school communities such as Kensington, or as you were just describing where the principals are making changes, find it difficult to sustain themselves after the founder or founding group of teachers have left. Um, how can schools try to build a lasting infrastructure that can survive those changes? I mean, I think that's one of the huge challenges, especially with with the revolving door of leadership and reorganizations on district levels, specifically when we're talking about public schools, but even in smaller charter school networks and even private schools. When things are unstable, it's hard to maintain those things. What I've seen in both of the cases that I've presented and talked about here, I think one thing is not just a respect for teachers, but finding avenues in which teachers who often stay longer than almost anybody else um, in buildings, but they have um, the weight of their voice is honored. They're seen as partners in trying to build the vision for these places you know, schools are funny places because both your students, who you serve, is continually changing from year to year as, as students, you know, matriculate in and out of the place. Then with just kind of the current policy landscape, there's so much turnover in leadership and sometimes with the teachers. Um, but as I was saying, the teachers play a vital role in that. 
in being a kind of stabilizing institutional memory for some of these things. And I think institutional memory is particularly important when you're trying to transfer from one cohort of students or one cohort of teachers to the next, a certain kind of spirit of care, of, of liberatory stances. There are, of course, no guarantees. I saw that at another high school that I had been partnering with here in, in Philadelphia, where it was a really wonderful and transformative leader, but they got picked off to kind of move up the, the administrative ladder. And so, you know, one of the things that didn't happen there is that uh, some of the building with and around and through the teachers just wasn't able to take hold in a way that um, kept the momentum going. But I remain hopeful in that. You know, I think for me to documenting and sharing those strategies, and that's part of what I'm trying to do with Kensington Health Sciences is actually document alongside them what has worked. You know, what, what's driving all of the things that they're trying to do? What's the vision here? And sharing that with others so that even if the principal or a set of certain like key teachers leaves, there's this kind of documentation of, of what has happened, you know, similar to what Tom Roderick's book around early childhood settings in East Harlem. Um, yes, like they've changed, but their histories are still there for us to really kind of continue to pick up on and really honor by continuing to bring those, those visions into the future. And looking at the future, how does the relationship of business or capital to schools compare today to 100 years ago? And how is it likely to change in the future? So there's a lot of parallel, I think, actually, with what we saw 100 years ago with that wave of industrialization and large captains of industry like the Carnegies and, and so on um, and what role they played. I think a lot of the influence and perhaps what's different, I'll, I'll get to in a moment, but what's similar, I think, is the cultural influence that industry and capital have had on how schools are run. So, you know, 100 years ago, we're thinking about a cadre of experts and educational professionals that were really trying to articulate a kind of, um, you know, they were called administrative progressives. And the progressiveness came from their focus on efficiency and really, you know, how to run a factory better. And so it was in some sense a kind of application of the logic of how to be a more efficient factory but this was a school factory that was the period of you know we had a mass migration of people from different parts of the world coming to our large urban centers in the united states and so there was a call for mass public education um, or an expansion of public education which i think in many ways shaped the entire 20th century into the 21st century um, with regards to what we are doing in schools and classrooms I think again here then in, in the contemporary period, we actually have seen a ramping up of not just the cultural influence, but the actual political influence on education policy, the ways in which schools are directed. We saw that in New York City with mayoral control, a focus on testing and outcomes that was framed as for the purposes of justice and the soft bigotry of mediocrity or fuzzy progressive education of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And so the response was a kind of, you know, yes, back to basics, but also a ramping up 
of with alongside technology, a focus on quantitative data that really, again, in some ways, you know, going back to spirit murdering, it, it kind of took the soul out of, out of a lot of schools. And I think has re reconstituted the, this focus on the production of students of a particular kind of student. And that that tie, like those who did not fall into that image of the student that they were trying to produce would then be victims of severe punishments, whether being pushed out, increasingly surveilled. You know, we see now like this, uh, the mantra of no excuses kind of schooling, which to me, I think is, is just so deeply harmful and has profound effects, not just on the individual student, but their entire families and the communities that they um, are said to be serving. But I think in many ways, schools are set up to just surveil and punish at this point, which is, is quite discouraging, to say the least. So as kind of a counter to that, obviously a lot of liberatory movements, especially coming out of indigenous communities, talk in terms of sovereignty, whether it's food sovereignty or other forms of sovereignty. How does this apply to education? I think, again, the, the focus to me, if, if we truly are thinking about education as liberatory spaces rather than ones focused on punishment and surveillance, um, you know, policing of, of bodies, our, our current system is focused on eliminating young people's sense of sovereignty, of agency, a capacity to be free. I mean, I, what I find to be most heinous is that it's all veiled around this promise that for you to quite literally, you know, kind of in a, in a colonial kind of process, actually evacuate all of those things that make you, you, um, but that the schools are, are designed to actually ask you to do that for your own good, I think is what's most heinous in the educational experience that young people are going through right now. And that as a teacher, I abhor to even be associated with, but there I found myself as a public school teacher, really caring about public school kids and their families, but still being forced to do certain things in order to keep my job. And I recognize that contradiction and I continue to sit with that. And so the antithesis to me is, again, not just decentering, but what are we centering? And if we're centering sovereignty and fueling in young people uh, providing opportunities for young people to le- both learn and apply the kinds of skills and risk-taking that are required in order to be free, in order to be sovereign, in order to be self-sufficient, but also community-sufficient, knowing how to be engaged community members. That would mean a complete about-face in what we're doing and what matters and what's at the center of it. And to the point you raised in your question, John, the the role of indigenous ways of knowing and being, I think are vital here as part of the retrieval process that those practices, of course, are absolutely um, rooted in indigenous communities. But I think all of us can learn a lot from, from those approaches and adapt them, engage with indigenous communities um, in, ethically, in ethical and responsible ways to learn from them, to learn alongside them so that we can continue to articulate and 
interrogate what we, what we really believe and what really is important to us and that shaping. And that to me, that one of the key things that must be important is sovereignty and that kind of spirit of sovereignty for both teachers and for our students, of course, but for teachers as well. You've explored the idea of community land trust as a possible model for schools. What would that look like? Yeah, so, you know, my, my own research is situated in, in East Harlem, El Barrio, in New York City. And as I was doing my research around schooling, and in particular, I was thinking about governance and the history of governance and the innovative kind of governance that actually ended up emerging in East Harlem in the 70s into the 80s and 90s around the, the small schools and, and schools of choice, which has been written about. And Heather Lewis has a, a really wonderful book about some of that period. And so uh, at the same time, as I was doing that research, community land trust as a concept was really starting to get traction, gain traction in East Harlem and in, and in New York City. And I think what I, what I mean by that in specifically is just the, the participatory kind of power sharing that a land trust is premised on. And so thinking about, you know, again, understanding that we live in a capitalist and, and racist kind of context, that uh, the question of ownership is still a question that needs to be addressed. But if everyone in a school community felt that they had some sense of ownership over the direction of a school, as well as this having a voice, you know, really thinking about the school as an anchor, as one of the many important anchors to an entire community or neighborhood, that if everyone felt a sense of voice and ownership in what that school means to that entire ecosystem, that to me provides a, a really open or a, a really wonderful window in which we can transform things and communicate to others that that being you know kind of top down and traditional in our mode of governance is not the only way i see that a lot here in, in philadelphia schools where people are always fighting with the school district our schools have been had been state run run basically by the state and the school ref, what was called the school reform commission for 17 years and what was absent in all of that even though they had these monthly public forums where people had two minutes to say their piece um, with a timer, you know, and that timer, even now during COVID, even though we've gone to a mayoral appointed school board, those practices are not ones that I think, you know, to go back to the question of moving at the speed of trust, these are not trusting relationships. This is not establish a respectful, trusting relationship between administrative power and the people that are supposed to be served by these institutions. And I think we've got it backwards. We need to flip that script. And I think that's what Community Land Trust does, is to flip the script on who, who owns or whose voices are at the center of, of this enterprise of land and homes and shelter and education um, in our case. Autonomous school communities can be liberating. They can also exclude based on race or class or other kind of factors, political factors, whatever. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we create systems that allow for balancing autonomy with accountability to protect against 
discrimination against those who are seen as others in whatever the situation might be? I think it's about instituting policies and shifting our culture around governance and rule to focus on people, to actually think about democracy in its fullest sense on every level. When I say that schools are an anchor to neighborhoods, you know, schools also function as these localized nodes of political power and and modes of governance of an entire city. And if we can't, if we can't really focus on voice and participation and collaboration at the school level, I really think it's hard for us to ever expect or to be able to move an entire city. It's actually what's been inspiring to me, you know, having moved to Philadelphia or starting to work in the Philadelphia area for the last seven years. What I feel like I've been blessed to be a part of is a number of coalitions that have fought the fight around community. I mean, I think what's been impressive is that the fight has been one where, or at least in the organizing circles and activist circles that I've seen and that have been most effective and from my perspective here is a focus, not just on single issues. So, you know, yes, like the school closures were a big issue for us in 2013 and in the subsequent years. But people didn't separate the school closures from the fact that we had a state-run commission that was governing the education system or that high-stakes testing had become the the sole metric for how schools are doing um, and how effective they're educating children and young people. I think the activist communities here have really tried to understand that all of these things are inextricably tied to one another and so that we need, a lot, we need lots of people fighting on different aspects of this larger complicated set of structures. I think that's what's key is, is being able to, to see that and to act in such a way that brings people together to look at these complex issues. And I think what I've seen in Philadelphia actually is that those that work um, and a lot of the people that I've worked alongside in, in these struggles have actually now, like years later, taken on public office, right? So now they're one of our city council members and and probably my favorite city council member and just one of my favorite people in the world is Kendra Brooks, who won on the Working Families Party platform or part uh, organization. And so, you know, here was a third party candidate and I don't know how long or if there had ever been a city council member who was a third party member or if there had been, it had been a really, really like decades, perhaps a century since we had had that. But like, here's this black mom who started her organizing around her kid's school and what was wrong with it. And that brought her into the activism and the coalition work that where she and I met. And it's just been inspiring to see that that then evolved into, you know, citywide, kind of power. And here she is defending, trying to uh, maintain the moratorium on evictions, on housing evictions right now. She's really focused on affordable housing. You know, she's doing everything that she promised she would work on, she's working on. And that to me is is just really powerful. How can our 
treatment or some would say exploitation of animals other than humans coexist with liberation? Yeah, I think again, and this is, this is a, a critique of movements, is that many of our movements, especially in education, are for good reasons are focused on children and people. But I think it's where our work needs to continue to grow. And interestingly here in, uh, in Philadelphia, particularly I'm thinking about like just kind of like environmental toxicity. So that toxicity being present in our schools and in our neighborhoods and what those implications are for all kinds of species. And so really pushing ourselves, decentering the anthropocentric human focus of our work I think is an area that we really just have a lot to grow on because I think it's really lacking in our analysis and in our activism. I wouldn't say not like writ large. I think there are definitely, so I, I know here in the West Philadelphia, for example, you know, there are certain parts of like longtime anarchist movements and, and things like that, that actually are also very focused on, on animals and other species and their rights and, if we're really thinking about abolition in the most global sense that we need to, as we were talking about um, previously, like we need to free them all. And uh, that's not really, you know, I think to the detriment of our movements, we're not really talking about that, at least in the circles that I run in. You know, I know young people are, humans are important, yes, but so are every other living species on this planet. So we have to be able to talk about that as well. And we have to model that for young people. I think actually that's been one of my struggles is when I engage with young people thinking about, especially like young people of color who are like the great activist leaders in a lot of this work. Um, when we talk about climate change or thinking about other species, that, that conversation doesn't gain a lot of traction, at least from, from what I've seen. And it's a problem. It, it really is. And so moving that needle, I think, is, is an important next step that we need to engage in if we're really interested in continuing to evolve our, our liberatory movements. A couple of weeks ago, you gave a talk at SUNY New Pulse on joy, healing, and transformation. Show us where the joy is. The joy, I think, the joy is in so many things right now. <laughs> you know, even just kind of like my emails in the midst of pandemic, you know, I now introduce my emails with, um, it, rather than saying, I hope you are well, it's like, I ask, how are you? And have you been able to find joy? Or I hope you're finding joy in different things. Because I think that's what I'm also trying to focus on right now is where is joy in my life and in my family and my community's life right now? And if we can't find it, then what do we need to do to, to go and build it or to create these spaces for joy? And so, you know, these have been hard times to find joy. But I think, I think for that reason, I've been doubling down on trying to do that. Part of that has been in the organizing. And I think, you know, <laughs> when you're an organizer uh, or an activist, there's always this sense that you're, you're always working, you're always stretched too thin. But it's by my experience that yes, while that is true, some of my greatest joys have been in working alongside just some of the most brilliant, loving people 
that I have ever met in my life and that I just feel blessed to have known. And I feel like that is the same thing in the classroom. The relationships and some of the people that I have been blessed to have an opportunity to be my students, who I ultimately at the end of the day feel like they are my teachers, you know, and how much I learn from them about a lot of things, including myself. Those to me are the, the kind of joyful, life-giving things that I, I try to pay attention to. I love, I'm a student of history, right? You know, and, and part of like the retrieval process and the, the joy in learning new histories or uncovering new histories or working alongside young people who are, you know, the, the participatory action research, like the archival work that I did with the young people when I was in El Barrio, I still look back, you know, this is almost 10 years ago now when I was doing that work with these young people who are now adults and have children of their own. But, you know, here were college age kids, 19, 20 years old. And they, uh, one, it was, it was interesting because it was like both a moment of anger when they would see all of these people, these change makers in these archives. Like we were at the Centro de Estudios Puerto Ricanos archives and looking at like, who is this woman, Antonia Pantoja? And so it was aggravating for them because they had felt like they had had their histories denied to them. At the same time, I saw joy in coming to know these change makers. Like, oh, there are, my ancestors were like these people that were changing the world. We can do that too. You know, and it's that kind of joyful process of learning and uncovering our histories to me is just, so the young people call it life-giving, right? Like it just gives me life to be with people, but to be also in the process of learning and also to, to be in the process of activism and just, you know, working to change things, however small or incremental these things are, are. Right now, part of my work has really been focused on, you know, defunding the police and having police-free schools. And I just feel joy in seeing the young people lead that movement. Me as the old crotchety professor, I just, I, you know, I tell them like, I want to just be an accomplice to your work. I'm not here to define it by any means. I'm just here to listen. You tell me what to do. And uh, just to see them lead is just like, wow, like the kids are not only all right, but the kids are going to save us. <laughs> you know, we hope. <laughs> so it just makes me ho hopeful. And so in that sense, it just brings me a lot of joy. That's such a cool answer. <laughs> you, I mean, you've just said so many things during the conversation. So one last question is, what are some of the takeaways for educators or for parents or students, whomever you really feel like you want to say something about that, you know, when people listen and then they go back to, it might not be back to the classroom right now. It may be back to their class on, on Zoom. But what are some of the, what are some of the immediate takeaways that, that you think people can, can be looking at sort of whatever their current situation might be? I hope people... To circle back to joy, I think first and foremost is I really want people to to sit back and and appreciate. Yeah, at that talk at SUNY New Paltz, I started with a quote from my son, who said, my my eleven year old, who said, you know, if you are laughing, you are breathing, and if you're breathing, that means you're alive. Um, I was just, I mean, I love my son, but I was, again, that was the moment where I was like here's my teacher. This is my, my son is my teacher. And um, 
the capacity to not just breathe, right? And, and understanding that that question of, and I think of, of Eric Gardner and, and going back to the idea of not being able to breathe. And so, you know, when we go back to our classrooms, thinking about one, taking a breath, but two, taking in like, what are some of the possibilities, the joys, the hopeful, the radical possibilities as, as my teacher, Gene Anion talked about, the late Gene Anion, where can we find them and where can we build them? And I, and I say that not to overwhelm any one person because I know it's like, you know, Monday morning happens or you, you know, Sunday night rolls around and man, you know, Mondays are tough. Mondays are extremely tough right now. And, you know, in the zoom classroom. So I, I guess the last thing is, is just encouraging people to, to start small, find those small joys and think about how we are still, I mean, curriculum is still our craft as much as, <laughs> as much as they've tried to scientize and quantify curriculum and teaching. I still am absolutely a firm believer that that is the educator's f- mode of expression. It's through the curriculum that we teach who we are. It is the, through the curriculum that we teach young people, that we provide young people an opportunity to teach us who they are. And it's through that kind of like medium in which we can share stories and share stories of others, struggles, triumphs, possibilities, science, language, to describe the beautiful things in our world. That to me is curriculum, you know? And it's like, it's that kind of, as facilitators of inquiry, the curriculum is the way that we communicate that's the joyfulness of learning that I think we absolutely have a right to and that I think we need to demand. And so we can start small. We can focus on, maybe it's, it's just focusing on making, having joyful morning meetings. If people are having morning meetings, like, or maybe if you're not having morning meetings in your, class, in your Zoom spaces, think about instituting a 15 minute morning meeting just to start and focus on joyful things. How do we humanize one another? How do we think about our relationship to other species and other things on this planet? Those are the spaces, right? And if we don't create those spaces, it's, they're not, there's, no, um, there's no given in terms of joyfulness in, in, the Zoom, in the Zoom classroom right now. And so we got to go out and fight for it. We got to go make it. But I absolutely think we're all, as educators, extremely capable and smart and transformative people. And I remain hopeful that even starting small, that build one little piece of hope, one little space for hope, and you add another, and you add another, till you know you have an entirely hopeful Zoom space from eight thirty to three, or however <laughs> however long, you know. And one that I think, you know, the last thing I'll just say is that one that really centers like the joyfulness, but also the process of healing. This online environment is extremely toxic and traumatizing and isolating for so many of us. But if we actually lean into it and teach each other how to use this opportunity to be together, right? Like here the three of us are in Zoom (laughs) Um, and it's been just a joy for me to just be alongside and be in conversation with the two of you. Like I want young people and teachers to feel that same thing. Maybe it's just for 15 minutes a day to start, but start there, start small, but keep building. Or in hip hop, we say, stay low, keep firing. Um, It's like, 
just keep your nose to the grindstone, but do it in a loving way and don't lose yourself, right? Like just focus on your joy, your students' joy and facilitate healing for all of us. And I think we'll be okay. So we come back to, it's all about the relationships. Always. <laughs> well, on that joyful and hopeful note, thank you, Dr. Edwin Mayorga of Swarthmore College. Thank you all. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Till next week. Thank you.